Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here with Dan Runman as usual, and we also have a special guest. His name is Aaron Wren. Uh, I'll talk about him in just a moment, but let's uh, just recap of where we've been. We have been in a series now for quite some time. I think we're right around 13, 14 episodes. They're all about an hour and a half to two hours long in this topic of manhood and womanhood. Uh, we've been we've been putting in hours and hours into this into this discussion into this series, and so where we're at now is we're in the application phase of of this ongoing series on manhood and womanhood. But where we've been is we really started with, hey, if we're going to talk about manhood and womanhood, and man man and woman is God's idea, God's design, well, then we better go to the Bible where God actually tells us about how He has made us as both men and women. So. We first started our series off with just just this basic, you know, hermeneutics 101. How do you interpret your Bible? Because if if we're gonna get the right answers, we've got to know how do we how to interpret our Bible. So we we started with an episode on hermeneutics or how to interpret our Bible. Then we went right into the Old Testament, Genesis one through three. Looked at God's design in the beginning, and then we went uh, through the Old Testament. Looked at a did a survey of the Old Testament to see how this pattern that was instituted. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, continued throughout the Old Testament, went into the New Testament with Jesus in the Gospels, went into Acts. Uh, then we did a number of episodes look, just looking at the specific passages in the New Testament epistles that really explicitly talk about the roles of men and women in, in the family and in the church. And now we're finally to this application phase. Uh, really, hey, we, we live in the 21st century we live in this Western society that seems to be very against uh, what the Bible says about how to live as men and how to live as women. And so how do we actually do that? You know, there seems to be this tsunami that's just coming against uh, a true display of, of, of manhood and womanhood. And, and how, do we, how do we overcome that? How do we get through this, this giant tidal wave and actually live as we were meant and called to live as, as Christian men and women? And so... We're in uh, episode number two in this application series. The first episode, we we interviewed uh, Dan and I. You know, Dan was with his wife. We interviewed another couple just on how they live. You know, as husband and wife with kids, and and how they homeschooled and how they did this as as Christian couples and Christian husband and wife. And and now we're here uh, in this this second episode in the application process uh, with Aaron Wren. And Aaron Wren, he is the founder of the masculinist and maybe you've heard of the masculinist before it it started correct me if i'm wrong aaron but in 2016 you started it with a, a monthly newsletter which is has continued you know you still do the monthly newsletter but now you've done uh, a podcast you do some blog work uh but yeah the masculinist has been around now for you know four years going on five years about uh it's been it's incredible content it really is good content and it's would you say, like, Aaron, you're, you're, you're trying to give sound advice to men living today uh, on how to live uh, as men in today's culture, in today's society, uh, from a Christian perspective? Is, is that a good uh, representation or, you know? <laughs> that's right. First, thanks for having me on. And yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. I, I say it's a newsletter about Christianity, masculinity in the modern world. So I'm talking about how we live as men and as the church in the 21st century. That's a lot crazier uh, than uh, a lot of other times, right? That we've had in, in right. recent years. And I come at it from a little bit of a different perspective uh, than the traditional pastor 
because they're, you know, and when you're a pastor, your role is essentially Bible teaching. Yep. I know that some of you, some of what you've done is Bible exposition. Obviously, I refer to the Bible. I talk about the Bible. I try to come with a biblical worldview. But I'm trying to come at this from what I call a genre of cultural criticism. Yeah. And I think it's really important that we have lay leaders who are shedding light on these issues because the Bible is, uh, you know, sufficient for all things, you know, the, we need for salvation and for many other things. But the Bible is not the repository of all wisdom on everything, right? The, the Bible is not going right. to tell you how to clean out the pea trap in your sink. There's a lot of things <laughs> it's not going to tell you. And I think when what I've noticed is when the, a lot of these pastors, you go to a lot of these sites, they're, they're essentially giving life coaching on dating and things like that. Things that the Bible doesn't really talk about dating. Um, it has right. principles that shine light on dating. But when you start giving people dating advice as a pastor and it doesn't work out, you can kind of discredit the gospel, I think, a little bit because and a lot of these pastors are giving bad advice. So I think one of the one of the things, one of the reasons I like to be kind of make clear I'm not coming at this in the genre of Bible teaching is I don't want people to, uh, you know, end up saying, well, you know, Christianity is not true because something, you know, Aaron said didn't work out. Because a lot of times you can give the best advice, you can do everything right, and things still don't go right. You know, right? Uh, you know, and so and so I really wanted to come at that from from that genre. I think that kind of the cultural diagnostics that come out of these pastors are weak. And you know, I really saw there was a huge gap between people like Jordan Peterson, you know, Joe Rogan yeah. on down, you know, to to more micro influencers that right. hordes of young hordes of young men are turning to them. They're not turning to the church. Yep. And I'm like, can we have a Christian, you know, voice in that discussion? that covers some of the same territory maybe that they do. Right. Exactly. That's no, great. That's awesome. Yep. And yeah, for those of you who are listening, if you haven't yet uh, come across Aaron's content, it is amazing. It really is great. And it really is. It just is. It's just stuff you really don't hear in the church. Uh, you really don't hear your, your pastors saying this. Or if they do give advice, like Aaron said, it seems to be uh, – it's hard to delineate like, okay, is my pastor saying this from like, thus says the Lord, you know, this is doctrine, this is theology, this is from the Bible, or is this just, you know, hey, this is how I did it, this is how I found my wife, this is how I parent, blah, 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 blah. And right. sometimes it's hard for the layperson to delineate between this is just a guy giving me advice and this is my pastor giving me sound theology. Right. Yeah, I think most pastors in the Protestant world are very unsuited to being giving out advice on marriage and dating because so many of them have a life path that is very unusual compared to people today. A lot of these guys got married very young, maybe in, in seminary and college. Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of them married like the first or second person they ever dated. Um <laughs> You know, so that right there, when you're when you're talking to somebody who's, you know, in his or her 30s and single, you don't necessarily know much about what that's like. The other thing is, um, you know, something that they don't get, they typically don't talk about is, you know, women are attracted to men who are like high status in society, right? Mm -hmm. Going after, you know, the athletes or the, the rock musicians, people that have like a lot of social cachet. And in a church the pastor has social status by virtue of his position. So he's, you know, the top dog, right? Or yep. maybe even certainly one of, maybe even if you're the youth pastor, you're the top dog in the youth environment, you stand yep. in front of that pulpit on Sunday morning, 
that right there gives you a presence and an attractiveness uh, that might not be there for the average person. And so I think it can mm. be very difficult. And particularly the voices that you hear the most are the superstars. Uh, Matt Chandler, <laughs> right. if you know Matt Chandler, uh, you know, mega church pastor in Dallas, he wrote a book called yep. The Mingling of Souls, you know, which is yep. on this topic. And he talked about when he was in college, and he's, he's a very charismatic, dynamic speaker. He was, oh, leading yeah. a, he was leading a Bible study with a thousand people in it. Right. And he would mention that like women were essentially throwing themselves at him. They were saying they were changing themselves and trying to present them because they wanted to be with him. And like, that is not the situation I was in when I was in college. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, like, you know, I, I'm this like dynamic leader of a thousand person Bible study and the women are coming after me. That was not happening. And so I think that they just don't have, uh, they have a very different life experience that a lot of the people do today. In many respects, it's a healthier life experience. You know, hey, sure. get married young, have kids, stay together, focus on ministry. I'm not saying it's a bad life experience. In many ways, it's a better, better, they've made better decisions than a lot of people, but because they've made better decisions, they're not necessarily personally equipped to relate to the fallout from people who've had different life courses. Mm. Mm -hmm. Aaron, that's, no, that's good. I, I won't sidetrack our time as it's limited, but, um, I've seen that same sort of thing because I got into ministry in my late 20s and I come from primarily a, a, a blue collar trades world. And I saw the same thing, not a negative, but you saw a lot of young men went to the university, then they got into ministry and they never understood the real guy that has to work 50 or 60 hours a week and then still come home and take care of his family and still uh, volunteer at the church, if you will. And it was just like this, this gap maybe that, what you have experienced and what you're speaking to, that all of a sudden a guy like Peterson or Rogan's show up and thousands of evangelical men are listening, right? Like, it's like, yeah, they're speaking, right. oh, my, yeah. they're speaking my language. So even, I'm just saying, even in the working trades world, there's a sense sometimes when those in our ministries haven't really tasted that world and, you know, relating to it, sometimes there's this gap is all I'm trying to get at, so. Yeah. Just an affirmation of what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I, historically in America, you know, certainly for, you know, since around 1800, you know, the, the people who are in the pastoral profession, uh, in essence, did not really live in the same domain, life domain mm -hmm. as other men. Uh, uh, you know, a, a woman, a Columbia professor named Ann Douglas wrote a book called The Feminization of American Culture, which I don't like the title. Uh, but it's sort of about the rise of mass consumer culture in the 19th century. And, you know, she really documents that with essentially the disestablishment of religion and different things like that, you know, the clergy, uh, you know, they came to occupy a position that was somewhat analogous to, to women and that they were separated from essentially the male domains of work and competition yeah. and other things. And uh, so, they were sort of, in a, in a sense, seen as a little bit unmanly, right? And, and the stereotypical preacher, it, it, you know, was, um, you know, kind of seen as this sort of soft, less competitive guy. Spent, you know, churches have long been sort of female dominated in America. So they hang, they spent a lot of time hanging out with the women in the church and, and in the world mm -hmm. of kind of like women and things like that. And so they, they were, in essence, not great 
socially, you know, not even engaged in the same world in the same way that other men were. I think some of that has changed today. Um, some of that's changed today, but that was certainly how it was. Maybe you say the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great insight. Yeah. Okay. So let's, yeah, let's, let's get into this, this, this topic of in, in the complementarian circles, uh, and you've been talking about this a lot, um, this servant leader model or the servant leader idea around what it means to be a man, a Christian man, you're a servant leader. Uh, can you just like flesh that out a little bit and why that might not be the best uh, way to think about masculinity? Right. So your listeners know about complementarianism and kind of what it is. Yes, certainly. Yeah. If they've listened, if they listen to all of our okay, episodes, good, I, good, I, good. I hope they would. We haven't really used the term a lot. Yeah. Though. So, you know, I, I take a very different view of complementarianism than a lot of people. I look at it sociologically. Complementarianism, sort of the threads that became complementarianism, you know, sort of started sprouting in the 70s. And it really crystallized as a theological movement in the 1980s, the late 1980s, with the yeah. Danvers Statement in 1987, and then in the early 90s, the book Recovering Man, uh, Biblical Manhood right. and Womanhood. Right. And uh, so I think the very most important thing to understand about complementarianism is that it's not some ancient understanding of the scripture. It is a very right. modern understanding. Complementarianism was heavily... Uh, a baby boomer dominated phenomenon in terms of how it was created. Most of the leading lights like Wayne Grudem and John Piper were baby boomers, what I call early cohort baby boomers. So they were born in the first half uh, of the baby boom generation, still very, very influential. And this came about at a time when, you know, second wave feminism was really overturning the, uh, you know, much of the traditional concept of gender roles in America, right. promoting, you know, essentially a, a sort of a gender equalist um, vision, uh, you know, where, where men and women are essentially uh, interchangeable parts, independent, not, you know, not dependent, you know, and not interdependent, etc. Yep. And complementarianism was essentially a reaction against that. It was a reaction against it at some level. And, uh, you know, I think functionally what they did is they, they were people with a high view of the Bible and they recognized that the Bible said certain things about church officers and about, you know, the relationship of the husband and wife in the home. And they wanted to hold to scriptural teachings on the subject, which they did to their credit, you know, mm -hmm. and they did that. And however, they, also wanted, they also sort of adopted many of the critiques uh, of traditional society uh, that came out of the feminist movement. Some of those critiques were very valid, I, I would argue. Um, but in essence, one of the things that they did was essentially take these old wineskins of, you know, headship in the home yeah. or male eldership in the church, and they filled them with new wine, right? Which was essentially... A, they re, in a sense, I would argue they almost repackaged some of the feminist conceptions of scripture and feminist conceptions and recapitulated them in a sort of a um, in a sort of a complementarian framework. And that's not entirely what happened, but there's some of that. And, and servant leadership, sure. to me, is one of the ways that this has been done. So the Bible says, you know, 
you know, essentially, you know, wives should submit to their husbands and, you know, all this, all that stuff that's in there. And these guys were like, well, we got to affirm that, but they didn't want to actually necessarily say that, you know, the husband really should be kind of, you know, the head of the home and making decisions and, and kind of, you know, ruling over the home in the traditional sense. So they redefined what it meant to be the head of the home. They, uh, and they, they essentially created this concept called servant leadership. And so they, they did, a, they took some things like, you know, Jesus foot washing or is saying that I did not come to, to be served, but to serve. They took the language around, um, uh, you know, husbands, you know, uh, should, you know, you know, uh, give themselves up for their wives, nourishes their own body, all, all of that sort of thing. And they sort of said, yeah. what it means to be a leader is to be a servant. And yeah. to be a servant is very much like what we would come up with functionally, very much what we would think of if we think of like a servant, like a butler, right? Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, you should be, uh, you know, providing emotional support and affirmation to your wife. You should be prioritizing her needs and desires over your own. You should be putting your wife and kids ahead of your own uh, desires. Um, you should be, you know, on fire for God. You should be super kind. You should be, you know, helping out with the housework, all this stuff. And so in essence, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, your, your job as the leader is to use your, you know, use your authority if they, they typically don't use the word authority even, but you know, use that position to serve, right, in a sort of a, again, a, a, a butler slash therapist role, you know, your wife and kids. It's very analogous. Um, you know, there's this, there's this concept that a couple of Notre Dame uh, uh, sociologists came up with when they surveyed evangelical youth uh, called moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. and, and basically what they found is, you know, American religious youth sort of believe God exists. He wants you to be good. He wants you to be self-fulfilled. He wants you to be nice to other people. He's not especially involved in your life, however, unless, you know, there's kind of an exception case and you can kind of pray to him. And they, they called this moralistic therapeutic deism, you know, moralistic, be good, Therapeutic, yep. you know, it's about self-fulfillment, self-actualization, and deism, which is essentially the idea that God is not super involved in the world. He's sort of detached right. the world. Mm -hmm. And there are view, what they describe mm -hmm. God in this uh, as a sort of uh, cosmic butler and divine therapist. And that's sort of like, it may have been a divine therapist and a cosmic butler. I may have got those wrong, but that's sort of what it is. <laughs> you know, yeah. essentially you know, the complementarian view of um, the complementarian view of, of headship in the servant leader concept basically defines that concept in a similar way is you are like a combination butler therapist to your family. And, uh, and so that's, that's basically what it was. I think it was, uh, it was essentially a redefinition of what it meant to be the head of the home. And, and it's essentially, it's, it's, something that very much appeals to sort of these white knighting type baby boomer people who still like bemoan the fact that men don't act like gentlemen and they don't stand up when the woman leaves the table and they don't open the car door and all that stuff. Mm. Of course, they would never actually uh, suggest that we should live the rest of our lives socially the way that we did back when those things were normative. Um, but 
Uh, be that as it may, you know, I'm very critical of the servant leader concept. Uh, I think it, it doesn't even come close uh, to fully representing, you know, the concept of, uh, of what the Bible teaches, frankly, in a lot of ways. And uh, just, just one example of that, you know, they typically present this dichotomy. Are you going to serve yourself or are you going to serve your, your family? Well, mm-hmm. when you phrase it like that, um, do you really want to be self-centered? Well, you know, biblically, we know we really ought to be caring about others and all this stuff. But, you know, it's, it's, it, that's a sort of exactly like the old George W. Bush formulation. Are you with us or are you with a terrorist? Right? It's, yeah, it, yeah. When, when people control the frame and limit you to two choices, and one of them is self-evidently bad, then the only thing that remains is the other choice. And so that's, that's a manipulative rhetorical technique. In fact, right. there can be many things to which a man might apply his leadership to things other than himself uh, or to kind of doing what his wife and kids want. Could, for example, it could be outward focused on mission. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus came, you know, Jesus came on mission. He was a servant, but uh, he did not serve people the way that they demanded to be served. In the foot washing incident, you know, Peter said, no, I don't, you know, don't wash my feet. He's like, look, if you don't do what I'm doing, if you're not on game with how I'm planning to serve you through washing your feet, then you have no part with me. He didn't right. say, hey, let me take your orders for dinner here. I'm making cook to order uh, meals for the rest of you. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't doing what they said they wanted. Right. He was serving them in the way that, you know, he chose to do it. So right. one of the, one of the examples, um, you know, I come up with uh, the Tim Keller, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, they, they tell the story of uh, Tim making the decision to go plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York back in the 80s mm-hmm. when New York was a war zone. And this was pretty much objectively a bad idea, you would say at the time. And his wife, you know, she wasn't super in with it. And he's like, no, we're going to go do this because we're, we're, this is an important mission to take on. And again, did he do it to please himself? No. Did he do it to please his wife? No. Did he do it to please his kids? No. He did it on, on mission. We're going into New York on a mission, right. the Great Commission for Christ. Yep. So this, one of the biggest complaints I have about this concept of servant leader, there's a lot of things wrong with it, but one of them is, is it creates essentially an inward focus sense of mission for the family. As the husband, your mission your role in the world is internal to your family. Your role is very much about first and foremost and almost exclusively about, you know, the fulfillment of your wife and, and your children and things like that. Whereas I think mission is externally focused. There's an externally mm-hmm. focused aspect to mission. Not that the home is, is neglected or is not part of your mission. And I think we see this, for example, in the famous passage from Proverbs 31, um, where it's talking about this this woman who's this kind of ideal wife, and she yep. is at home. Now, she's not baking cookies, and I think that's important to understand. She was not a housewife <laughs> in the traditional sense. She was overseeing this major household enterprise. Yeah. Um, it, you know, at the same time, where was her husband? He was at the gates of the city with the elders of the city, essentially ruling over the external domain. She's, yeah. she's, she's 
supervising the internal domain of the home. He's out in the, in the world, outward facing into the world. And so I think there's a certainly an outward facing idea of servant leader in mission. And this concept is what is not, not just me as a man, what not just what is my personal mission, but what is the mission of our household and our family in mm. the world. And so again, it wasn't just Tim Keller that went to New York. Kathy Keller was very, very heavily involved and is to this day in that right. church. That was a joint, that was husband and wife on mission together doing yep. it. And I think that's an, there's an important outward facing dimension that's very, very much missing in the servant leader. Um, I could go on and on and on about what's wrong with servant leader, but I mean, I'll, I'll stop right there <laughs> well, if you want to talk hey. more about it. It also doesn't work. It's ineffective as it's ineffective as a dating strategy. We maybe we can talk about that one. But I just think it's in essence they redefined complementarians redefined what it meant to be the head of the home to essentially yeah. uh, say that you are a you know sort of a servant to your wife and kids. Uh, which was would have not been anyone's traditional understanding of what that that meant, and I think it's very clear they explicitly rejected the traditional understanding, uh, kind of of that uh, of what that meant, mm. uh, and so um, that's what I say. It's a little bit new wine, new wine and old wine skins. The formalisms, the formalisms of kind of the traditional system are there but the words mean very different things than they did in the past. We've kept the words, but we've redefined what they mean. Mm, that's good. Yeah. I was thinking Aaron, two, two examples recently. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, the professor and the Madman with Mel Gibson. It's fascinating. I watched it now. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, Sam, you see his wife come alongside him. And at some point he's even waffling yep. a little bit on this mission. And she says, wait a minute. Like I'm in, you're following through. I brought the kids here. And it was that sense in which she was maintaining this whole world around him to make sure this mission could go forward. And the other example I, I get yeah. from Rod Dreyer in Living Not By Lies as he interviewed these men who made it through communism, their families were in. Like the dad might have to go to prison yeah. and there's mom home with her six kids. And the dad even was willing to kind of not completely capitulate, but kind of give in so he would get out of prison. And she said, and the wife was like, no, you don't dare. This is our mission. You stay in prison. Yeah. I'll stay with the six <laughs> kids to make sure we keep moving forward because these kids and I are in, you know, it was just fascinating to watch that. Yeah. So, you know, I loved, I loved cool. seeing and it's, it. It's the example, it is the example you, you see throughout scripture. You got, you know, with Adam tend the garden subdue the earth and then the wife comes eve comes alongside him as his helper fit for him to do this mission think of abraham <laughs> like yeah. that is that is such the example of a man on a mission his wife coming alongside him his family his whole clan coming alongside him in this in this mission certainly jesus certainly paul obviously he wasn't married but he he even said hey do i not have the right to bring along a believing wife which kind of implies like hey I have the right to bring along on this mission a wife and a family. Uh, and so it, yeah. you just so, see it throughout Scripture. So could I ask, Aaron, could I ask? I do think we run into. I wanted to ask you a question when you get done there, Aaron. I just, in the midst of you discussing right now, one thing we didn't do, and I would love to hear you say it because you've thought so much about it. So when you think about this, if you were to give a definition, like contra, you know, servant leadership, or even a definition of masculinity, kind of weave that in maybe to our discussion how you would yeah, see okay. that defined. Okay. 
Well, what, you know, what I, what I was going to say is I, I do think we have to, to uh, understand the Bible in the context of societies at that time and how different they were than societies today. And, uh, you know, this is something that's become, I think, more people become more cognizant of this. Uh, but the Bible was written in a pre-industrial culture. Basically, all of human history, you know, up until very yep. recently existed in a pre-industrial culture. And the key thing about a pre-industrial culture is that economic production was located in the household. Right. right? So the household was not just a place that you went when you got home from work and watched TV and like things like that. The household is where you, you grew, the, you were a farm. Most people were agriculture. Most people lived in rural areas. Most of them were involved in some sort of food production. Yep. You know, just like the, some of the disciples were fishermen. They had a fishing business, yep. right? <clears throat> or they were involved in some sort of a craft or trade. Uh, there was yep. some merchant work, but most people lived essentially a self-sufficient, frankly, in many cases, subsistence uh, existence. You know, so you had an economic production in a home you had essentially health care was in the home, you know, old age care was in the home, education took place in the home, yep. uh, you know, even sort of policing and defense in many respects took place in the home. When Lot was captured, what happened? Abraham rounded up his men and went and got him back. <laughs> yeah. And when we switched to, and in that pre-industrial environment, we see that the husband and wife had very complementary, highly, highly distinct roles. Uh, you know, Adam Smith might have said division of labor, uh, which is to be economically more productive. You specialize and, and have division of labor. Um, but women were intimately involved in the production process. You know, they were making the clothes. They were preparing the food, right? Mm. They were making the candles and the soap. They were doing all the stuff, right, that was necessary for that family to survive. You fast forward to the industrial revolution, you end up in a situation where there's the household is no longer a productive enterprise for most people. You're going to work in a company and you're earning a paycheck. And with that paycheck, you're buying your food, you're buying everything you used to make at home, you're now purchasing on the open market. And mm -hmm. the government today does a lot of what used to be done. You know, government runs the education system, the government has the social safety net, the government in the private sector, provide healthcare. And so the household doesn't really do a lot. And that's one of the one of the things that we run into is the household that, you know, basically got reduced to a place where you consume things and a place where you raise children. And the marital bond was essentially companionship and you know mutual emotional support. And in that environment, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, during, during a, you know, the, the, the heyday, like let's say the fifties, this reached its apex, but certainly it was the case even going back to the 19th century, you know, essentially, you know, women's roles became non-productive. Women essentially lost their productive function in the home. They became essentially housewives and mothers. So they're still productively involved in child rearing, but they're not, they were not economic agents as they were in the past. And then when you had suburbanization, you, you know, essentially cut, you know, cut these families off from their traditional social networks, from their traditional kinship networks, et cetera. 
And so you had, you know, in the 50s, this is what Betty Friedan was sort of complaining about is like, you know, the housewife is sitting out there in the suburbs by herself. The family might only have one car. She might not even have a car to drive during the day. She's got the kids. She has really nothing to do all day, but watch the kids and clean the house. And that did cause dissatisfaction for a lot of people. And so I do think Mm -hmm. that, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, needs to be addressed in modernity is understanding what does it look like to live out these biblical principles in a world where our socioeconomic structure is radically different. Mm, You know, again, in Proverbs 31, the woman is not at home. um, The woman is not at home baking cookies. She's running, she's heavily involved in administering an economic enterprise. I think what the feminist basically did was say, well, now, and you'll, you'll hear, you know, you'll hear kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of feminist Christians today say this is going to work, uh, you know, going to work in an office or going to work in whatever is the equivalent of what, you know, that woman in Proverbs 31 is. Today in our world, having a career for a woman is basically the same thing. Now, I don't know, but I think there is kind of a, you know, this is where we haven't really thought about, um, thought about, uh, you know, a lot of the changes and, and, and the social structures and how they've affected our families and, and what we do. And so in a lot of cases today, right, the family has no mission, right? The mission is go to work and get paid. And then you're kind of like, just, you know, take, take family vacations, you have kids, but there really is no right. concept of mission that you don't really need the family for much today. The reality is, um, if you could go back uh, you know, this radical Catholic priest named Ivan Illich, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he wrote about like in, uh, made in Europe and some of these areas, you could always tell who the bachelors were because they, they, they're, you know, they had, they basically had one shirt. It was threadbare. They didn't have any clothes. They, they smelled very bad because, <laughs> you know, if they weren't married, there was no one to make clothes. They had no way to get clothing. They had no way to get uh-huh. this and that. And so, you know, I could, though, today as a single man, move to New York City in 2015, 2014, and I don't need to know anybody. I don't need anything. I'm basically pretty autonomous because I can use money to purchase everything that I need. And so we're much more autonomous today because it used to be if you weren't part of a household, if you didn't have a family, you were dead. You were literally going to die you know, something terrible is going to happen. I think, it, and this is one reason why if you look at the Bible, it's always about talking about the widow and the orphan. People right. who were marooned outside of a family structure that would care for them. And, it, you know, if you had this widow who didn't have a family to care for her, it's like, well, you know, obviously the church has to do something because this person can't survive on her oh, own. Right. And then, you know, orphans are not going to survive on their own. And that's just not true today. We don't really need, we don't really need. And so I think that the family has come and marriages have come to be seen as essentially really about self-fulfillment, emotional support. And that's a very fragile bond, right? Yeah. Whereas in the past, it was really about mutual interdependency and need. If you uh, if you weren't married, if you didn't have kids, right? If you didn't have a household structure around you, you faced a very bleak future. That's not true today. And uh, I still think it's better to be married than to not be married, but it fragilizes families to a very great extent. 
Um, mm. You know, and I think that's really important. I think that's really important to understand why is divorce, you know, why is divorce rate so high? But one is, you know, being married is essentially today uh, all about, you know, your relationship with the other person emotionally. Is it fulfilling me? Is it making me happier right now? If it's not making me happy right now, then maybe I should just get out of this. And so I, it, it, the changes, the changes that have fragilized, I think, our, our relationships are not fully understood. And a lot of people today, um, this guy C.R. Wiley uh, wrote a book, Man of the House. A lot of people are trying to figure out how to recreate or reestablish some sort of actual functionality in the household uh, today. Hard to do, but uh, I think this idea that you know the family itself is on a mission. Uh, that this family has some mission that it is collectively pursuing in the world is one way to do that. And I think, again, pastors and their families, you know, when the pastor's wife is part of the deal when you're hiring a new pastor, you know, right. and a lot of these churches, I mean, I think they, they underpay them in some respects, right? It's like, yeah, there's a yep. huge expectation that the pastor's wife, who's not drawing a salary, is going to be doing a ton of work for the church, Right, you're essentially getting a two for one special, and and so, but I do think that it's you know I, I think in many respects they're not paid uh, appropriately for their work. They should be getting right. more money, uh, but I do believe that this idea that like the husband and wife together are jointly engaged in this mission uh, of ministry, uh, it, you know, is a powerful concept. Mm. Yeah, when the children get involved too, I mean the children are often very involved, and. Um, you know, and so I think that's uh, uh, that's something to you know uh, something to keep something we have to think about. We have to wrestle with, and there's not an obvious it's not an obvious thing to do. You know, so I think there you know, we do have to be careful about how we apply the Bible to today's world because a lot of the circumstances are in fact quite different mm-hmm. than they than they were they were then, and the pressures on the church are are very different than you know Paul. I always say. Uh, Paul, you know, he endured beatings, he endured shipwrecks, he endured stoning, he endured, you know, all this stuff. And yet no one ever took away his ability to make a living as a tent maker. You know? right. But and so it's like, oh, you're canceled from tent making because you said a bad word. You know, right. he didn't have to face that. He didn't have to face the loss of his profession. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that facing the loss of your profession is worse than facing a beating. It's just different. Right. That was something he didn't have to worry about. So, Aaron, you know, because our time is limited and I don't want to lead the whole discussion, but I am curious you're talking about this. So because you think about this a lot, one of the questions that Sam had in the initial kind of list of thinking. So how do you think, how do you counsel, say, the 25-year-old, the 30-year-old that is pursuing this world, they want to live biblically, Maybe they, you know, they've listened to what we've said as these biblical principles. Now we got to figure out how to apply that in this, you know, the modern, say, postmodern urbanization world. I mean, just what are your thoughts about that? You're you're diagnosing it, I think, wonderfully. I'm saying, so what's that yeah. mean? What do we do? Well, I will say, um, I really hate to give direct advice and counsel to people, and. Here's why. Mm-hmm. Um, here, here's why. One, I got a lot of very. It was a period of time in my life when nothing went right, 
and I got some very good advice from the church, a lot of it very good advice. It just turned out catastrophically for my life. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm super, I'm super influenced on this point by Nassim Taleb. You know, he wrote uh, Black Swan. He wrote Anti-Fragile, yeah. Fooled by Random. Right. And his concept of skin in the game. And, yep. uh, you know, I can sit here on this call and I can tell people, do this, do this, do that. But I don't have any skin in your game, right? Right. If you do what I tell you, if you do what I say in your life is um, goes down the tubes, it doesn't affect me. And so I'm very loath to give advice. What I do talk about is what I try to do is, is provide people with tools mm-hmm. and frameworks to think about the world, to make their own decision. And I do talk about, you know, what I'm doing in my life. And so sure. I, you know, I'm saying, look, I do believe, right, that the normative pattern of human existence is married in marriage with children. And as a man, you need to be focused on that. And, um, you know, I'm saying, here's what I did. I did the same thing. I got married. I had a kid late in life, not ideal, but I'm doing it anyway. So, you know, I share these kind of things. I kind of share what I'm doing. I do try to give practical input, you know, so I talked a lot about the, uh, the financial independence, retire early movement and, you know, about, you know, the necessity of, you know, living below your means financially, talking about college alternatives and ways to restructure your careers or differently. So I talk about things like that, but I don't like to tell people directly, this is what you should do because the degree of difficulty is high in the world today. Right. And it's very uncertain. It's very dynamic and it's very hard to just directly, there's no, there's not like a simple answer like there used to be, right. There used to be sort of these life scripts that if you followed them, things would more or less work out. Okay. Well, that doesn't necessarily happen today, right? <laughs> and so I, I am trying to give you like news you can use. This idea of mission, okay, oh, maybe I should think about think about the household in terms of mission. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so, so that's one uh, that I do. I also say, look, this idea, if you're, if you're trying to make a woman like you by being this great servant leader, it's just not going to work, not over the long right. term. So I, I try to tell people things like that. Where I do feel like I feel confident being directive with regards to, for example, my son. Now he's three, so I'm not giving him a lot of advice right now. Right. But I have skin in his game uh, because whatever affects him is going to affect me for the rest of my life. You know, we're tied at the hip. And so I I do think, I really think there's way too much advice, you know, direct advice that comes from people who don't know your situation and who don't, um, don't necessarily know. So I, I try to like, I try to like equip people with tools and perspectives they can use to make their own decisions on life. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when people are like really, you know, I do like will personally give some some advice. I, I try to even avoid that. Mm. Um, cause I realize I look at my own life. I'm like, I look at other people's lives. I'm like, man, it's obvious what they should do. They should do this, 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 and this. And I think about my own life. I'm like, well, I think it's kind of complicated. It's not obvious what I should do here, here. And why is my life so complicated? <laughs> the answers aren't obvious. But everybody else's lives are so simple. Right. Um, you know, yeah. and I mean, there are some simple ones. I would say, look, get off porn. I mean, if there's like one thing I can say, if you're a guy, it's like, you got to like get off of porn and right. figure out how to live a sexually continent lifestyle. I feel very confident saying that because that's very biblical. Um, right. So direct biblical injunctions, I feel very confident on. Um, and, uh, you know, and nothing will make you feel better, I think, as a guy than knowing that you're not addicted to porn, looking at porn. You're going to feel a lot better about yourself. And, um, 
so that's one I'm just yeah I'd throw right. out there right there it's like it's like a lot of things yeah. you know a lot of people know that easier said than done maybe perhaps <laughs> that's good yeah no that's good and I, I even found that in my own life because I'm 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 24 single certainly would desire to be married and um I get a lot of advice from guys who are married or had just you know just been married or you know year or two into their marriage and it seems like I've noticed that all the advice is is totally what happened to them. Right. So hey, this is how it worked out for me. Therefore, then it's going to apply to you as well. So right. do this. And I'm like, okay, I got ten people in my life giving me advice. It's all different, but the common thread is it's exactly what they did. Right. But yet it's all different. So it's like, well, I'm a right. different guy, and I I have a different set of circumstances, uh, and so it's just not so clear. Right. Now, now what, <laughs> what I would say on that point. And here's what I would say, you know, applying to your life or applying to things about kind of uh, marriages, we have to treat finding, you know, a wife, you know, if we want to be married, right. and it's a free country. Some people don't want to be married. If you don't want to be married, don't get married. If you want to be married, if you're going to say, hey, I'd like to be married and have kids someday, you have to be bring focused effort and intentionality to that task. The same with the same focus and intentionality that we bring to getting into the college we want to get into, to succeeding yep. in the career that we want to get into, to building up our podcast, to everything yep. else we do in life, right? I'm, I'm amazed how, how diligent people are, uh, you, you know, sometimes spending years and like doing all this research and everything about to get into college or to do this or that. And then essentially just kind of go through life, skate through life thinking, well, there will be some spontaneous connection that occurs. Um, mm. There'll be some spontaneous connection that occurs and I will be able to get, to get married and it'll just happen. It's, it might happen. You know, usually it does for most people at some point, but I mean, the, the reality is, you know, it, you know, I get, I get attacked for this because people are saying, you know, you know, you, you don't treat, you know, relationships are organic. You know, you, you can't, you can't force things to happen, which of course the relationships are organic. Professional relationships are also organic, right? There's a lot of things organic. It's right. like if you're trying to sell a product, you have to like go on sales calls, right? Right. And so uh, there's this idea, I think that, you know, I just don't really have to do a lot. It should just naturally happen mm. when in fact it, it requires today, especially focused intentionality. You know, what, what are my requirements to get married? Who, you know, where do I need to be personally before I would feel confident getting married? You know, there was a time in my life when I just had to step back and say, Aaron, you should not be in a serious relationship. You should not get married right now because you need to fix these things in your own life. Sure. Until this, 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 and this is in, is in check, you're just not in a place to get married. You know, historically, that was the case. If a man didn't have a profession and it wasn't established in a job and a business, couldn't get married. Right? So you had to yep. meet, meet the requirements. Yep. Secondly, it's so, okay, what, what are my, you know, baseline requirements, you know, in someone that I'm willing to marry? It has to be a Christian. Right has to share my faith, has to have congruent beliefs in these various things. You know, I think just as women are entitled to make their list, men are entitled to make their list too. Here's what I expect. And yeah. I don't think we need, we shouldn't, you know, uh, you know, well, she needs to be blonde. I don't do like brunettes. I mean, something like that. You know, I mean, you, you put that, you have the right to do that, but I, I don't, you know, I'd advocate that. But I think, you know, we should think about it. like, look, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to build, work hard to become a worthy man that any woman would yeah. want to be with. And therefore I'm going to have a high standard for the woman that I want to be. With. I want somebody who's yeah. going to be a compliment and, you know, and a, a good life partner and mission. 
mm. together. Right. And so, you know, I think coming up with, you know, that, that kind of like, you know, here's, here's my, you know, deal breaker list of things they got to have. And yeah, say, okay, you know, great. If it's like, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to get from like, I know that I know about myself. I'm working on myself. I know what I want. I got an idea. So things are important. What am I going to do? What's my action plan? Right. right. Now, maybe your, maybe your belief system is, you know, I'm 23. I don't want to be married right now. I don't want to be married until later in life. Then you're not going to necessarily, you know, maybe you're not going to take a lot of actions in the short term. Um, but I, I do think my, my key on this is whatever your plan is, whatever your path you take, it, you actually do have to like, um, you know, you really have to treat it the same way as finding a job. We wouldn't just say, sure. well, I lost my job. If God wanted me to have a job, um, you know, <laughs> he would send me one and maybe I'm just called yeah. to joblessness. So people say I'm called, maybe, maybe God has given me the gift of joblessness. We'd never take that. We'd never take that approach in any other domain of life, this sort of passive, um, right? passive, well, it didn't happen. I guess God doesn't want me to, you know, uh, ever own a house because I don't have one. Well, we don't think about that. We, we got to no. we do something. And so I think right. that that's it. And I think this is one of the biggest issues, you know, any of the standard marriage stuff. You're going to hear about how Adam was passive in the garden and he didn't do this, right? You're going to hear all that, which is true. I mean, like so many men today, passivity is a tremendous, tremendous problem right. for men today. We have to be active doing things. If we want things to happen, yes, we need to be dependent on God because unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But mm -hmm. we also need to think about what are what actions are we taking to advance ourselves you know, towards the personal goals that we have and getting married, I think is a great personal goal to have. And so that would be my, if you want to call that advice, Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not, and that's, that's how I would say it. I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm not telling you who right. you should marry. I'm not telling you when you should be married, but I will say <clears throat> you dramatically improve your chances when you really are treating it with the same degree of intentionality, focus, and rigor that you brought, what we bring to other areas of life. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. That's wise. Switching gears here a little bit, um, this idea when you study manhood throughout history, this idea that manhood is bestowed, um, and I, I know you've talked about that a little bit. You've <clears throat> been in circles that's been where that's been talked about, um, such as you know going out into the wilderness and killing a bear or killing some wild beast or you know fighting in a battle and killing an enemy or something like that. Uh, how how is manhood bestowed today in today's society? It seems it seems like a very arbitrary thing uh, hard to really pin down of what that would be like obviously i have two bear skins behind me in my office i have deer dan has deer we've killed animals but in no means do we think that that was our you know us becoming yeah. men that's just yeah. our hobby <laughs> yeah. so right. what yeah. what's that what does that look like today <laughs> you know i don't know that uh, we have any of those formal rites of passage you know that other other civilizations have had, but I do think it's important that, um, you know, may, you know, whether you are, you know, a man, right. Or whether you are like, you know, embodying manhood has always been something that you essentially have to earn. You, you have to demonstrate it. You have to earn it generally in some sort of public way, mm. right. Where other people are seeing what you're doing right. and, you, you really have to, uh, you know, do it through, and it's really comes through sort of recognition by other men, you know, that you 
that you measure up. And it could be through competition with them, or it yep. could be through something else. So we could think of, think of an athlete who goes out on the basketball court and has to demonstrate, you know, that he has what it takes yeah. right, to do that. You can think about the soldier who goes into battle. You know, you, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt, his famous quote about being in the arena, right? It's not about the person that wins or loses, it's about being in the arena. And so I think yeah. there is this sense about being in the arena with eyes upon you in the public square, engaged in a high stakes, high risk activities that has always been something that's been, you know, core to how societies have defined uh, manhood. There's a great book yeah. that, uh, you know, Manhood in the Making by David Gilmore that kind of goes through how societies, various societies have, have uh, defined manhood. You know, one of the commonalities is, you know, men who are homebodies, right, were, mm -hmm. were sort of like looked down on, right? If you're a homebody, if you're not out with the other men, if you're not in the square with the other guys, then, um, you know, there's something wrong with men who shy away from competition, men who... Yeah you know, are too conflict averse, men who are too, you know, too oriented towards domestic life. Yeah. It's always been something that's, you know, it's, it, you're not really, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing. So I, so I do think there's this idea of certainly achievement, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, you know, contrary to what the, the pastors will tell you about how uh, women are attracted to servant leaders, Jordan Peterson in his 12 rules for life book summed it up, you know, you know, girls are attracted to boys who win status competitions with other boys. So yep. in essence, right, you're in a status competition with other guys. And um, I think the nice thing about, about um, kind of manhood in that way is even if you don't have, even if you're not at the top, you'll have a place kind of in a hierarchy and you earn respect, you know, even if you're not necessarily one of the guy who stands and fights, even mm -hmm. if he loses the fight, mm -hmm. earns a certain amount of respect versus yeah. the person who does not fight. And there's this right. idea, you know, uh, one time I had a friend who was really interested in um, going out with this particular girl. And we're like, oh, you got to ask her out. You ask. He's like, no, I need but finally, he went. He went. Asked her out, and like she shot him down cold. And you know what? <laughs> no, nobody made fun of us. Like you know, you recognize that guy put himself right. out there, right? Yep. Yeah. Even even a guy who like steps up to the plate, like deserves respect. And that's not right. to say you may not get ribbed over this, that, or the other thing, but like you do earn respect yeah. Yeah. when you're, you know, on on the battlefield and whatever that domain may be in the arena, putting yourself out there. And, you know, when you go in, you, you can, if you lose the fight, but you fight well, I think that, you know, a lot of people will say, yeah, that guy earned your, you know, you earned your respect when, yeah. you, when you show that you're willing to at least be in the game. And I think that gets to the Roosevelt quote, right? Yep. You know, the, the guy who leaves it all on the floor, um, yeah. you know, it, it is a guy that you, you can respect even sometimes if they don't win. It's always better to win, but you don't necessarily always have to be the, the winner. Yep. Uh, right. Even to, to, I think, to, I think measure up. And I think that's why men like Jordan Peterson, um, even like a Ben Shapiro type, like these are guys that are, are going out in the public square and contending. 
yeah. and putting themselves on the spot, uh, getting in the battle, getting in the fight, and people, you know, millions of people for those two are, are watching them and seeing them do this. Right. And well, you it's, see, it's very I've, attractive. <laughs> I've noticed this about um, those guys. A lot of them manufacture scenarios in which they can demonstrate some sort of courage, manly courage. Yeah. I think of Ben Shapiro as an example of that. Ben Shapiro used to do his college tours where yeah. he knew he was going to get protests. So he would go in where he would knew there was going to be protests. And by going in where the people are protesting, I'm showing courage going into that environment. That yeah. was, I think he's, he wasn't foolish about that. I think he went only in like controlled. It's like controlled, but I think that's very shrewd. I think Jordan Peterson, one of the big things that sent his career into stratosphere was that famous Channel 4 interview in the UK with that yep. kind of yep. hostile female interviewer. Yeah. He just sat there calmly. He didn't get flustered. Yeah. He's just calm. He's not getting rattled. Yep. He's just like, he's standing his ground. He's like, I'm standing yep. my ground. And that. You know, that people look at that and they see that. And I think the, pro the problem, I, I, do, I do think that, you know, a lot of these e-celeb types, you know, manufacture, uh, you manufacture that sort of like, uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, do, I do think there's some, something that's a little artificial about it and, and, and some of it's not healthy. Um, you know, I certainly, I don't put, you know, Shapiro or, uh, you know, Peterson in that category. Um, you know, but a lot of these kind of like, you know, um, you know, uh, super political types, on, you know, going online and yeah. like, you know, talking all this tough talk and other people hate yeah. me, I'm getting hate and look how brave I am. And, you know, I, I think, there, I think there's, you know, it's, we, we, we sort of select for people maybe that, that aren't the healthiest. Um, but, you know, again, because we don't have, we don't have those traditional avenues of, um, we don't have those traditional avenues to avenues to prove yourself, um, you know, it, it, it's a little, uh, it's a little weird. You know, another thing I would just say that, uh, you know, another way to demonstrate is just to demonstrate competence. And mm -hmm. I think so much today, you, you know, we don't really have opportunities to demonstrate a lot of competence in this world. And I think about my father who could, you know, build an entire house from the ground up. Yep. He knows how to do everything. You know, he's just competent and like yep. all kinds of stuff. And you know what? I am, there's a lot of things, I'm competent in some things, okay? I'm not chopped liver. But like a lot of those kind of traditional things, like you got to demonstrate competence in the home by basically building and repairing it, right? Yeah, you kind yeah. of a set of the pioneer days, like the, the man built this house, cut the trees, yeah. did all this stuff, built, I'm building this house <laughs> myself. <That's> awesome. <laughs> Uh, so there's confidence being demonstrated there. And I think a lot of yeah. times today, we don't really demonstrate a lot of competence. We don't have competence in any particular thing. Video game competence doesn't count. <clears throat> no. <laughs> Thanks. So you can think about that. How can I gain skills? How can I gain skills and demonstrate competence? I do think hunting, hunting and competence with, uh, you know, with weapons and case certainly counts, um, you know, as, as competence. Um, but, uh, you know, think about like, how do we build, additional skills and competences that allow us to demonstrate some degree of mastery, you know, yeah. mastery over the forces of decay in this world. Yeah. Okay. And, well, but see, and, and but see be, Aaron, that, that speaks, that speaks though. See what intrigues me, intrigues me of you as I've talked to you and I told Sam, Hey, it'd be great to get conversation with Aaron. Because you've said, I've listened to you. I've read, you know, that maybe you were more introverted. I think you've, you've said that publicly in your life. Maybe, 
um, introspective. My point yeah, is, I'm definitely an introvert. Yeah. yeah. So here's my point, though. What you're doing in your whole masculinist, Aaron, is demonstrating the very thing you're talking about. We're watching you going, okay, here's a guy. Again, the point being, while we have like our outdoorsy world that we do, if you got around Sam and I, we're the, that outs, you know, the extroverted, you know, outdoorsy, athletic type of guy. And we keep saying, but that's not, there's something in this that's right and good, but that's, not true for everybody lives this out differently and the principles not apply the to everyone. So there's great authors in the world that sat in the afternoon, you know, you know, writing that did exactly what we're doing and we may be doing it differently. So I'm just saying that's what's intriguing to me about you is that you are demonstrating this. You're putting yourself out there on a very uh a topic that's got a lot of volatility in the culture, but you have an expertise mm-hmm. about it. You, you've read, you're deeply yeah. wed and studied about this. And so what you, your dad did with the house, I just want you to know what you're doing right now. And I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And you know, I do think it's true. Like we, I, this, I do think we fall short in some extent and that we create these stereotypical male, uh, you know, what is a man? A man is a rugged outdoorsman and he's right. a, you know, he's a hunter and he's this and that. And, I think those are all good. I think those are all good and manly things to do. There are other deme- there are other things you could be manly in. Right. You know, that's what I'm saying. That, scientific yep. exploration. Yeah, there you think go. Think about scientific yep. exploration, mental, oh, literary yeah. expertise. There's other domains yep. in which yep. to, you know, demonstrate competence. I will say, yeah, absolutely. I do think at the end of the day, when it when it comes down to it, though, there is a physicality to manhood um, that must be you know, must be expressed when the Spartans, you know, excuse me, when the Athenians went to war, Socrates went to war with them, right? Socrates, yeah. you know, by all accounts, you know, acquitted himself well in battle. He's, he was an intellectual guy, but it's like, if right. somebody's trying to break into my house in the middle of the night, right. that there's, you know, there's no substitute for physicality in certain cases. So, so I do think yes. that, you know, Good. sort of physical, you're willing to engage physically in conflict at certain points is ultimately like a must have. Um, right. You know, if I'm not, you know, if if we're in like, you know, World War II and I don't fight, you know, then maybe there's something, there's something wrong with me. Right. I was, th- I was thinking about this in like some of these, um, I was reading a book. I've been reading a book about uh, some of the you know, uh, uh, kind of establishment leaders of the post-war era and a couple of them, these were people who were from elite WASP, wealthy backgrounds in World War II. They were trying to sign up and their eyesight was so bad they couldn't pass, they couldn't pass the, the vision test to get into the military. And so they memorized the eye chart in order to fake it and to get into the military. <laughs> and these people had a legitimate out, but they're like, no, we, you know, no. we intend to to go into battle. And so I do think there, right. I do think there's an element like I think there are all these domains of competence, right? But when when your village is under attack by the enemy. Yep. You got to like be one of the guys that goes into battle, you know, yeah. right. and that might you not be the case. You better but, well be prepared to do it. Right. So I think, I think there is, so I don't, I do think that there, it's impossible to totally detach yourself from the physical dimensions. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I like to preach that as well too, especially cause you're, I think your very first masculinist newsletter, you actually laid out some statistics on testosterone levels and grip strength and such fascinating stuff. Like, Hey, you might, you might be the, <laughs> the same amount of strength as a 30 year old woman now today or whatever like that. You're certainly not as strong as your dad was type stuff. Right. And I, I hate the idea that, yeah, you and your, you know, 
the husband and wife are laying in bed at night and somebody breaks into the home, and if there's even a question about who is more capable of going down and fighting, then something's wrong. Right. Like if, if the man is like, yeah, he's a man. You can you can come up with the reality, hey, I'm a man. It's my role to go down there, but my wife might be stronger than me. I just In my mind, that should never happen. Like, Right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> oh, that fires me right up. You know, okay, we're we're running out of time. There's one thing that I did want to ask you because you're 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 such an urban guy. You're you, you know you describe yourself as an urban analyst. At one point, you did an urban blog. Um, and it, it, in my world, uh, I'm a country guy. I grew up in the country. Dan is too. Um, and so I certainly have an affinity for you know the small town type thing, uh, uh, life as well. Uh, and so it's so interesting to hear from your perspective because you're the opposite. You're the urban guy. You know about the, the city, and I know about the woods. <laughs> but as it pertains to living a masculine life, even a feminine life for women, but obviously we're, we're more talking about masculinity right now, uh, you know, husband and a wife, rearing children, having children, um, is it economically possible in some cities like, say, New York to even do that today? Or is there just too many barriers? I know in one of your podcasts you even mentioned how uh, these families, one, they have to have two incomes to even make it possible. Two, they have to pay illegal immigrant nannies under the table because they otherwise wouldn't even be able to afford right. a nanny if they had to pay the taxes on it. So it's like, is it even economically possible? Is, are the cities making it impossible for men and women to live biblically today? Yeah, that's a good question. By the way, I grew up in a very rural area. I grew up four miles oh, outside I of it. I shouldn't assume. Out of 50 people. <laughs> and for a while, I lived in a trailer on a gravel road when I was a kid. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> there but, we go. Uh, I, I do love cities today. And I, that's one of the things that has really changed in our world. I mean, as recently as, uh, you know, 1910, uh, the world was 90% rural. Right. Today, we're over 50% urban globally. We're going to 75% urban. I mean, America only became majority urban in 1920. And so the, the fact that, you know, the, the world, Rome, Rome was a little more urbanized, but the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the world was entirely rural village existence until very recently. Now we have all these cities and mega cities, and it's a really very different environment. I do think there are places where it's difficult, you know, to sustain yourself as a middle-class person. New York mm -hmm. City can actually be a good place um, in, in some respects for kind of lower income immigrants and the like. Um, sure. You know, sort of outer boroughs and they've got like a lot of social structures and social supports around them. Um, a lot of community supports, you know, if you're able to get some type of subsidized housing uh, New York is actually not that bad a place to live. It's really kind of call it the middle class ranks that really get squeezed in a place like New York. I do mm -hmm. think some of these super hyper costly um, urban centers in select cities because of the cost um, really make it very tough to have a healthy family life if you're not affluent, really affluent. Yep. But most cities are not like that. I live in Indianapolis today it's very possible to buy a single family home in an urban neighborhood sure. in Indianapolis and, you know, live, live in the city your whole life. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of people doing that. There's a lot of people I know who live in, you know, live in urban areas that are heavily involved in Christian ministry, don't make a lot of money and yet they're still managing to do it. <clears throat> so I, I really feel a, that sort of thing doesn't necessarily apply 
you know, outside of select kind of areas. Sure. Kind, sure. Of, kind of select areas is what I would say. Um, you, sure. know, you know, New York City, there's things you can learn from New York, but New York is not the norm. San Francisco is not the yeah. norm. There are probably yeah. about 10 cities, you know, or 10 places in America that are really so far outside the norm that they're, they're an exception case. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think you very much can have a healthy family life in, you know, uh, in, in urban areas. You know, I'm not anti-rural. I like I like rural areas. I, you know, I think in some respects it would be nice to live in a small town, a nice little quaint small town that's within easy driving distance of a city. Yeah. Uh, but I, so I, I like I like the I like I like both rural and urban. I think there's a lot of positives that come from uh, you know from uh, uh, you know urban life. You know, uh, we're 15 minutes from the zoo, so my wife took you know our son to the zoo yesterday. There's a lot that comes, there's a lot that comes, you know, you get a lot of free stuff in the city too. Uh, but so I, I think it is, I think it's a concern in some places, but not the majority of places. I'm not one of these urban triumphalists um, either though. I think people want to live in a rural environment, uh, you know, by all means do. <laughs> you know, I'm, not like, sure. I'm not telling people to move to the city. You know, everybody's <laughs> got to find a place that's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. We all have different, you know, personalities, interests, affinities, etc. Awesome. That's great. Well, we're about done with our time. <laughs> uh, anybody have any final remarks? <laughs> no. <clears throat> that was a great. Uh, Thanks just, for having me on. Yeah. I just thank yeah, you for your, absolutely. Con- your contributions. Wonderful. Keep at it, uh, Aaron. We sure appreciate yeah, it. Keep man. going. Yep. So. I, I love it. So, yeah. We're yeah, thanks again for for coming onto the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are listening, um, yeah, thanks for listening. We appreciate uh, you giving us the time. Uh, again, if you are listening on some type of podcast app like Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, it helps with discoverability, things like that, uh, and share it with your friends if you enjoy it. Uh, but again, thanks for listening, and tune into the next episode of the Preach and Persuade podcast. Have a good day. Bye.